Sublime. This is the podcast that explores a full-spectrum spirituality. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very glad you're here today. Okay, uh, I've been giving a lot of Dharma talks and in in, in releasing those talks in the podcast uh, this year, but I'm finally getting back to uh, delivering uh, the monthly or semi-monthly interview. Um, I actually have been sitting on a pile of previously recorded interviews from last year, and with all the Michigas of moving house and, and just political chaos, I just didn't get around to publishing um, some of these conversations. So I'm really happy to finally uh, have these interviews see the light of day. And today's interview is with a professor of philosophy and Buddhist studies, um, J- Jessica Locke. Jessica is assistant professor of philosophy at Loyola University, Maryland, in Baltimore, Maryland. Her research explores Buddhist and Western moral psychology, cross-cultural philosophy, and phenomenology. She has studied and practiced Tibetan Buddhism for many years, and in her extra-academic life, she teaches meditation and has developed and facilitated contemplative workshops on white privilege, diversity, and anti-racism. So much of this is what we wanted to, what I wanted to talk to her about in this conversation. And this conversation does get into the philosophy of phenomenology. Uh, it gets into the construct of whiteness. And we explore, or try to explore, how Buddhist practice can function within a process of learning about self and other that facilitates the dismantling of racial bias in individuals and society. Now that's a big order. It's a tall uh, aspiration. I'm not sure... You'll, have, you'll be the judge on how successful we are. And, um, and, I, and I'll just say from the outset that this is a conversation I've wanted to have for a long time. I've been looking for um, sort of a person that I thought would be a good candidate to, to, to talk and, and, and highlight these themes with me. Um, and Jessica clearly is, 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 is well equipped for the task. Um, but I'll say from the outset that I was I was a little bit uneasy about this conversation only because of the the way that as a privileged white person I'm very sensitive to how fraught these topics can be. Um, but I really pers- I really did appreciate the perspectives that Jessica brought to this conversation, and I hope you find um, valuable reflection in in our conversation as well. Um, she is going to be co-teaching a course. On these, on these topics at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, which will be held online um, starting in April. And so the, uh, I'm going to give a link for that, for the course that she and her co-teacher, Brian Lesage, will be teaching. Also in the show notes, I'll be including a link to the article that Jessica wrote that first appeared in the journal for the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, which brought this, all of this to my attention brought her work to my attention. And as you'll hear, I, um, I knew Jessica way back as a student at a yoga studio in Boston many years ago, and it was just really good to connect with her again. So without further ado, I now bring you Professor Jessica Locke. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So um, you, 
I've been wanting to have a conversation like this for a while. And um, as a way of introducing you, first, you're, you're an assistant professor of philosophy at Loyola University in Maryland in Baltimore. And your research, as your bio says, explores Buddhism, Western moral psychology, or Buddhist and Western moral psychology, cross-cultural philosophy, and phenomenology. And aside from your academic credentialing, um, I had contact with you probably 12 to 15 years ago. Uh, you, were, you were showing up at a yoga studio I was teaching at in, in Boston. We got to know each other a little bit then. But then in the intervening years, uh, you've gone on, on to get your PhD in philosophy and dive deeper into Tibetan Buddhism, I think. Um, and recently this summer, um, I was going through an email from the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. I was looking at their newsletter and up popped uh, an article called Living Our Histories, Shaping Our Futures, Buddhist Practice and Anti-Racist Education for White People. And when I saw you were the author, I thought, okay, there it is. That's, this is the person I need to talk to because um, like many, uh, I've been painfully aware of what has been unfolding and the kind of the consciousness that's dawning um, in our culture as a result of these incredibly unfortunate police killings that we've all witnessed. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I've primarily been in the position of listening, trying to just listen and read and educate, update myself on the, uh, the deeply troubling dynamics. Um, but when I read your article, I realized this, you would be a great person to, to, to really uh, embody a conversation with around this and um, hopefully help me and others start to think through this in, with some clarity in, in ways that make sense. So thanks for coming here. I know, I know in the <laughs> anticipation of this conversation, I expressed my own anxiety, partly because it feels like the culture, there's a, there's a dynamic in the culture whereby really no matter what someone like me, a, a white privileged guy has to say, it's either going to be deemed inadequate or um, implicitly or overtly kind of part of a racist um, dynamic and... Um, and I'm just going to take a little courage from someone that we discussed a little bit online, um, courage from the linguist John McWhorter, who's black at Columbia University. And he, he sort of says, um, we, people, need, people like me need to be ready to take, stand the charge of being a white supremacist and, and sort of um, not get not lose our way with that that kind of challenge and if if it if if it doesn't feel like it uh lines up with our experience of and our intention of of how we want to be within these dynamics um there's there's kind of a, either you're in us in with us or not within us dynamic that that uh troubles me to some degree because it, it loses some of the nuance in 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 the discussion and that's sort of what i want to um get into with you so um I guess those are my disclaiming caveats from the, out from the beginning. Um, <clears throat> and in terms of beginning this conversation, uh, I thought we could start with a safe topic, <laughs> which is to back into it, which is that you, you have studied something called moral phenomenology. Mm -hmm. and in your essay, you connect the, the process of the, of the exp exploration of moral phenomenology to uh, a moral development and a transformation of consciousness, which you see as being, I think, vital to the dismantling of dynamics that perpetuate racist, uh, racist, racism and racist views. Um, so before we get to the, 
ways that those dismantle we dismantle racist ideology or view. Um, what let's start with what moral phenomenology is because those are that's a pretty big mouthful and uh, even with myself as someone familiar with these terms it, I couldn't necessarily s clearly say exactly what it is and, I, and maybe we can start there. Sure, sure. Um, but if I may, I kind of just want to uh, say a word on what uh, what you opened with, which is all just to sort of mirror and validate that, you know, I feel a certain amount of insecurity and anxiety about having these conversations, too, as a white person, um, because so much of the uh, the process of for white people drawing attention to our white privilege and to whiteness is sort of by definition, and we'll talk about this hopefully in the in uh, as our conversation proceeds, is so much about sort of drawing our attention to things that ordinarily for us disappear from view that we often kind of see and experience through habits of whiteness and um, through our privilege, but we don't necessarily see our habits of whiteness and our privilege as such, although others and uh, people of color, black people, um, can see it, it is not invisible to them. <laughs> right. And so there's this way in which that, um, for me, I experience this as like stepping outside of my zone of competence and having to try to feel around for um, uh, really relevant and important aspects of my experience that are hard for me to perceive and to try to develop my capacities to perceive this thing that's actually morally very important and that others can see and point out and so developing that competence feels kind of awkward <laughs> sure. for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we will get into this because it, it touches into increasingly what I see as a spiritual theme, and, and that is this, the theme of blindness um, mm. as, as, a, as, a, as a way of talking about ignorance in, in sort of a, in a Buddhist sense of the root of what perpetuates suffering or generates suffering. Um, and yeah, there's a sense of becoming starting to become conscious of default blind blind spots within mm. one's perception and then i think the concomitant feeling of that within that is shame uh right. there's a, a strong sense of shame which if we're not able to work with that then it it kind of reflexively skews people into almost distorted ways of behavior that, that aren't as necessarily part of the, the, the healing reconciliation. It, it actually can be uh, an energy that I think starts to reinforce the very divisions that we're trying to overcome. So, so yeah, I mean, I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, I felt immediately in light of uh, what we all started to realize after George Floyd was killed. Um, I saw this documentary on Amazon, I think, called The Long Shadow, looking at um, the, the real historical roots of this country and the, like the narrative around what what was really at play when, when the colonies declared independence. You know, was it political right. freedom or was it the, the political right to slavery and, and, right. and maintaining it? And, then, and, you know, just it was, you know, it's a dawning of awareness that, oh, oh wow, 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 I... I thought I understood some of the salient aspects of this, but it's actually much more of a deeper fundamental mm -hmm. sin. And, um, and, and there is that shame attendant to it. So, so yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I personally shy away from the language of blindness um, just because of the sort of ableist connotations that can come from that. Mm -hmm. But in general, I definitely uh, 
take your point about um, uh, not feeling like we have a perceptual capacity. But in this case, actually, it's something that we can develop, I think. Yeah. Um, that's sort of at least the, the sort of basic uh, presumption that I take is that this is actually a capacity, a perceptual capacity that we can develop um, right. through and, with and, practice. Yeah, ex- exactly. And that's, that's, that's the thing that I appreciate in your essay is how uh, I think the contemplative process is one in which that capacity can be trained up and, and cultivated, right. if not just uncovered. Right, um, right, right. And, and so I definitely want to try to connect the dots on, on those things. So Sure. Um, so moral phenomenology. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and then and I, and you I, opened with a good question. Right. No, no. And it's one that <clears throat> the phenomenological piece, uh, some, some of the listeners may be aware that like this is, this was an insight that I had um, many, like a year or two back about like the importance of framing the discussion in terms of subjective experience. Um, so meaning a lot of times spiritual teachings can sound like they're making these absolute claims about the way things are in terms of mm. metaphysics. Like the, the, the nature of consciousness gets, 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 gets described as, as having sort of these, these actual characteristics that are, that are sort of, in a sense, scientifically stated or, or objectively stated. And, um, and, and for me, that's always made me go cross-eyed a little bit because it sort of runs a counter to what other asp- what, what other uh, insights from science emerge. Um, but when I place the whole contemplative journey, and I'm not just limiting it to Buddhism, but the contemplative journey into the, the exploration of what it's like to be somebody, like what it's like mm-hmm. to be you, and in terms of first-person direct experience, then many, many of the kind of inscrutable statements of, that sound absolute and metaphysical suddenly cl- click in and make total sense to me. And they, they really, it was a sort of a sea change of understanding. So mm-hmm. I'm, I realize me talking about it now probably doesn't translate to anyone listening, but I do kind of want to like frame things around that. Like the, that when we talk about phenomenology, I'll let you explain in a moment, but phenomenology is, is at, the, at the heart of this contemplative journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, how would you, what's a, what's the starting definition of phenomenology and, and we go from there. So there's, in this conversation, we can parse phenomenology, simpliciter and moral phenomenology and phenomenology in general is a philosophical school, uh, primarily associated with 20th century French and German thought, um, that basically sought to understand how and why human beings experience the world the way that we do. What is structuring our experience to give rise to the specificity and particularity of our experience of the world? And phenomena is the the Greek word for appearance. So it's a study of appearances. Mm -hmm. And um, in particular, the figure, the phenomenologist that I am have worked with the most is Maurice Merleau-Ponty, a French thinker. And particularly, he develops this concept of habit, phenomenological habit, that um, explains the sort of history of how our world appears the way it does. So that it's not just these immutable features of our psychology or our perceptual faculties that 
um, give us this kind of static world that is common to all subjects, all individuals or something like this. But each of us through basically processes of habituation, of repeated engagements and repeated kind of practices of working with particular phenomena, particular objects, particular types of actions, that we develop this kind of rich, specific way of experiencing the world that is deeply habituated. Mm-hmm. And there are bodily habits, uh, motor habits of kind of actually m- movements and particular, uh, like he uses examples like typing or a woman who uh, has a long feather in her hat. And so she that she kind of in, in her bodily habit incorporates this extension of her body into her kind of body schema. So that when she climbs into a car, she has a sense of where this feather is as part of her sort of uh, kind of bodily dimensions. Mm-hmm. But um, what's most relevant, I think, to our conversation here is perceptual habits. And the ways that we are habituated to perceive certain things as um, imbued with particular kind of valences and meanings and values, a a weight one way or another, or meanings that are specific to us. Would you even add Um, to that um, imbued with essence, like a a kind of essential nature or, 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 or the way it isness, like, oh, this is just the way it is, not realizing that this is the way your mind is constructing the, the perception. That's great. Yeah. And, but I, and with that caveat that it's not a true essence because right. it's not actually the way things are, but we assume that the world that we're sort of perceiving habitually has this seamlessness and a logic to it that we, we impute, that we bring to it, that we think this is the way it is. And we're not necessarily appreciating that the the way it isness <laughs> is something that has built up historically, that we have adopted these meanings and values that are appearing for us as if the world is ready-made, but that's not necessarily the case. Right. So so right. So the but coming back to phenomenology, that this is it's it's a, I, I, what I'm hearing you say is it's a it's an exploration of the kind of simplistic way, like the looking at how our experience is filtered, shaped by filtering structures, and, um, and then uh, coming to a kind of a reconciliation with how those experiences get shaped and then seeing what we can do from there. Are, are they, you know, I think that's the es- essence of your essay, which is, is this deterministic then? Are we just sort of are we slave, enslaved to our conditioning? Or is there a way to uh, experience a malleability of those filters mm-hmm. and and come to a more harmonized way, maybe, of, of, of seeing and being? Right, right. And I mean, I think that that question is where we shift from phenomenology of just a study of appearances to moral phenomenology of be- beginning to problematize the ways that we have been habituated and the factors that have contributed to the sediment or that what has sedimented as the structure of our experience and saying some of this is better than others (laughs) Uh, or some aspects of this is better than others. And um, there might be important ways that we should begin to think about how we are habituating ourselves and make a practice of this. And um, the Buddhist study scholar, uh, Jay Garfield is Mm -hmm. kind of known for uh, theorizing that Uh, the best way of describing Buddhist ethics is moral phenomenology. So 
you know, the, the sort of gloss of what ethics does is answering the question, what should we do? And rather than providing a set of norms necessarily as like the fundamental uh, essence of Buddhist ethics, he says, it's actually about working on our consciousness, reshaping the ways that we kind of uh, the structure of our experience and the ways that we experience the world. And I mean, the reason why, so to kind of return to the general concept of moral phenomenology, the reason why this is important is because all of our moral life, our perception of a moral problem, our uh, perception of sort of what actionable aspects supervene on a moral problem, our perception of whether or not an, an event is even morally relevant to begin with, all of that begins with perception, you know, and um, our the scene in which our moral life unfolds happens because of and within the context of our perception. And so um, our habits are what give us the sort of raw material, basically, for our moral life. Mm -hmm. And so you could say that moral phenomenology is the sort of branch of phenomenology that takes up the ethical ramifications of our perception and of our experience and says that uh, the way we experience the world has huge moral import and we should work with that. And yeah, um, it's funny how in, in trying to prepare for this chat, uh, it, it almost felt like everything I was listening to and reading suddenly had some nugget to, to, to offer and, and some insight to share, bring to bear on this. Um, and one of the things I just happened to listen to recently was a conversation or a, a, a talk that Ram Dass gave probably mm -hmm. 20 years ago. And he, what's relevant to this conversation is that he shared his own experience of taking psilocybin with a black psychiatrist. The two of them are going to take psilocybin together and going into the experience Ram Dass, he, he, he admits, he said, I grew up in a very affluent Jewish ghetto. It's actually the town I live in now and in Newton, Massachusetts. And he was trained to teach, to, you know, and taught to, to treat everyone with respect and to treat everyone equally. And he said, you know, I inhabited that, that kind of white, upper class, class liberal value and ideal intellectually. He said, but if I'm honest there was something that was, there was fear in me. And it wasn't so much fear of like the psychiatrist in this case, but just fear of, I think, going into the trip and, you know, having the egoic mm -hmm. pressure valves of control gone offline, he was afraid that something uh, darker might leap out of him that would betray his kind of upper-class liberal ideals. Um, but then he, he, he went on to say that, within the trip experience itself, he had a direct experience of the encounter with his friend being one of consciousness waking up to realizing consciousness sitting across from him just in different packaging, pure and simple. Like it was mm -hmm. just, it was a, a pure direct experience of that. And this is sort of, I think something that is it's it's mentioned in various forms in wisdom traditions that there's this this unity consciousness that's that 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 takes on separate form 
um, and gives a sense of multiplicity that uh, upon the, the fundamental unity of things. And he's, but he's, the, the important piece here, and I think this gets to the moral phenomenological part that you're talking about, is that he claims, now this is just a sample of one, so we have to take it with a grain of salt, but he claims from that moment on, the emotional valence of fear that he felt in, in contrast to his intellectual ideal, he said that completely dissolved and, 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 and never came back. That he was, mm. he became firmly rooted in experience of of never forgetting the fundamental unity of being, and um, and to me that speaks to a. I mean, it could be you, know, you could hear that and say, oh, that's all well and good. It's not going to solve the material inequity and the structural racism, and, and we can talk about that too. But I think part of the what animates my work and or inspires me is that by facilitating a transformation of consciousness, the sense of identity that one has in relationship to these very things can be one of, can just, one can step out of the, the this and that subject, object, um, me, not me, uh, we're different, uh, what are we gonna do with that to remembering a fundamental unity from which we can kind of clean up and 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 help direct you know i'm not sure how to say this but like direct things in a more healing direction um from that from that re- connection of unity um now i i'll pause there i, I know i can probably sound like a, a pie in the sky like throwback to the 60s or something but, <laughs> <laughs> but you, is that at all in the in the in the rain in the in the, in the same realm of what you're talking about or am i am i sort of way off track of that i mean uh it's a little different actually from the tack that i take in some of my research on uh moral phenomenology and kind of the moral psychology of buddhist practice and anti-racist practice even in as much as i usually kind of uh study and think about sort of more incrementalist gradualist Mm -hmm. methods for bringing about the kind of transformation of consciousness that uh, would portend the sort of moral change and uh, consciousness transformation that we want. Um, But, you know, in uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, at least, there's also the view of like a suddenest transformation and the the fact that a genuinely uh, paradigm shifting uh, experience of stepping far outside of the ordinary purview of your conscious experience has a lasting impact. And I do think that there's really something there. And I mean, my own experience of deep contemplative experiences, you know, not just necessarily like my like daily, uh, meditation experience, but particular, you know, I'm sure meditators have can point to particular experiences that were like, whoa, teaches you something about the the reach of your mind. And I think psychedelic experiences can often uh, sort of mimic that of realizing, seeing uh, just how prolific the mind really is or how how vast the mind really is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at, at the conclusion of those sorts of peak experiences, that doesn't necessarily mean that like now I'm free of racism or now I'm free of self-cherishing, but we now have kind of a, a North star that we can look to and remember and work toward. We have a kind of clearer sense of what's possible. And I do think that that's actually very more from a moral psychological standpoint, from a phenomenological standpoint, that's very relevant. 
Yeah, I mean, in mentioning Tibetan Buddhism, one thing I did want to—I I thought would be a, applicable to this conversation—is is their ref, reflection on, I think, what they refer to as the two truth two truth doctrine, where there's an absolute truth of of unity and inter- interconnection, and then there's the relative truth of separation and individuality, and mm-hmm. and and I think, and we can get into this, but one of my concerns at the moment is that the conversation around themes like racism and identity politics seems to be trending towards a heightened emphasis on the relativistic position mm-hmm. and and is forgetting the more absolute universal side of the equation and it's not neither or it's it's they're both sides that are you know essential to have in mind or have have mm. have in view um but uh I do, and I appreciate what you, how you described it. Is like there's there's paths that tend to be more incremental, and that sounds like what you're sort of sort of a wearing away of the right. sort of the structures of the racist ideology or racist view viewpoint perspective, mm-hmm. um, and then more the sudden sudden absolute realization that can can flash flash on really. Um, at any point, it's it's ever present. Uh, meditation seems to make it a little bit more. Uh, likely in that the, per- the meditator becomes more accident prone to that, that nice. big wake, wake up. Exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, I think they're not, they're not mutually exclusive. So maybe to that end, like on the level of incremental gradual wearing away and, and gr- gradual perceptual shift out of a default you know, view that is, is, and I think in your words, is, is imbued for, for what liberal white folks, like imbued with a, a, a normative white perception. Is, is that fair to say? I mean, it's sort of a, this <laughs> it came up in your essay that, and I was thinking like, what would constitute true whiteness? Like, and I, I've seen humorous memes around this, like white people carry water bottles with them all the time. And, you know, that's, that's, that's the, the least of the pernicious things, but um how how does the contemplative journey uncover and 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 also wear down or transcend those perceptions so yeah thanks that's a great question um so one thing that's I'll start out with that sort of touches on your point that I think is a good one that right now, a lot of the conversation around racial justice and around anti-racism focuses so much on the conventional and on kind of just the, the food fight of our, uh, news cycles. And, um, and sometimes kind of doesn't seem to have a bigger view of like, what are we even working toward? You know, can we articulate the world that we want or some kind of bigger vision here? Um, and at the same time, I think that there often is a habitual pattern in, in Buddhist sanghas that I've seen of re- like totally taking refuge in the ultimate. And um, I'm nodding vigorously. <laughs> Those of you that can't see me, I'm nodding vigorously. Uh, and when conversations about racism within Buddhist sanghas come up uh, saying, well, you know, fortunately, we all know that none of these categories has any ultimate reality. Everything's empty. Fundamentally, we're all, everything's empty. Fundamentally, we're all the same. Or, you know, thank heavens that all of us are Democrats. And, you know, it's really the the political conservatives that we need to all work on. (laughs) And really kind of... um, 
uh, I think missing the conventional level and the importance of actually the pernicious and pressing lived moment that we're in of, uh, white supremacy and the ubiquity of black death and uh, how grisly uh, the conventional actually is. And so sort of finding, you know, not to be too much of a, uh, a cliche, but finding the middle way between these is, I think, super important. But, I, you know, th- th- I knew that the point that I did want to come back to was that I think you're absolutely right that many spiritual Buddhist organizations, community sanghas, mm-hmm. um, do try essentially bypass the issue by sort of trying to keep their feet planted in the absolute level of Buddha nature. We're all the same. We're all one. Yada yada yada, and 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 glossing over the very real inequities um, and injustices on the relative level. Um, and I just I think the the two it's not either or. As I try to kind of say say it's it's it's, it's an and both situation. And, you know, earlier when we started on this thread, you raised the question of sort of, I can't recall exactly how you phrased it, but sort of like, what is whiteness? Yeah. (laughs) And um, I think that that's actually an interesting question for thinking about the middle way between uh, or that brings together conventional and ultimate here, because I think you can really get yourself into some uh, trouble when you start reifying whiteness and saying like whiteness is this monolithic, massive, uh, unchangeable primordial fact of us as white people and of American culture and our history. And from a Buddhist perspective, part of the reason why I read whiteness as a habit Mm -hmm. of perception is that that we, when we, experience perceptual habits, we experience them as real, as true, as reliable. But they, as I've tried to explain, like they have a history. These have come together due to causes and conditions. And so anything that has a history has a future. And so I think that sometimes discussions of whiteness can really dip into a lot of reification. And really, I think what I'm trying to push with thinking about them from a moral phenomenological standpoint is that this is pliable, like all of our habits of thinking and perceiving and the habit even of the self, that is something that has come together over time and has sedimented over time and therefore is susceptible to practice and to um, not necessarily, you know, undoing it overnight. Yeah. uh, but it doesn't mean that we can just, you know, eschew all of our perceptual habits and, you know, have totally clear, light mind. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I think, I think just to, to echo what you're saying, um, that's one of the concerns I, as a, as a pre- contemplative Buddhist, I do have about the conversation is that there is this reification. There's the taking this, something as an abstract and making it real um, and, 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 and enshrining it in kind of a, a, a codified view. Um, the, as you're speaking, I heard one of my first Dharma teachers say, say to me, when we look at experience, we see that all nouns are verbs. Mm. So the, the, so the thingness that we think we perceive is, is revealed to be a process in change. Yeah, that's interesting. And, um, so I think that, it's like a simple way if, if I were to summarize like 
what I'm hearing you say, it's that these habits, they, they have a history and, and that history has a history and yada, yada, yada. But uh, we can become aware of the process and the process is actually experienced as an alive dynamic, mm-hmm. a living thing within us. And then it, as it feels, it's not so rigid, it's not so ossified or calcified. And then it, it, it starts to breathe. And, 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 and then my guess is it's from seeing that dynamic that a new kind of moral imagination or creative outgrowth from that yeah. starts to emerge. I think that's probably... I think your idea, getting into your idea of transformation of, of consciousness and, yeah. and development there. Yeah. And actually, so what you're saying is sort of reminding me of um, one of my favorite kind of, or maybe you could say the seed syllable of a lot of my research comes from the French philosopher Michel Foucault, who's not a phenomenologist, although he's kind of downstream of uh, the phenomenologists, a critic of them, but um, still kind of broadly speaking within their world or uh, their purview, uh, he said, people are freer than they feel. Mm. And I think that that for me is, goes into both of these dimensions of uh, what Buddhist practice is uh, sort of exploiting, like the unfixedness of us and of our thinking and the fact of process, like that all nouns are a verb, we are, and including us, you know, the self is a verb, <laughs> the right. self is a process or what we ordinarily would call the self. And the same is true of um, the work of exploring the sort of racialized meanings and values that are directing how we operate in society, that this too is freer than we feel. And uh, that I think that a lot of times when we take on a sort of feeling of cynicism of like, oh, this has such a deep history, there's no way out of this. Or, you know, this my, my whiteness is, you know, obscuring my perception so totally that there's no way out of it. And so I just need to sort of throw up my hands and you know, just apologize for my whiteness because there's nothing I can do about this. There, I think that there's, we need to, knowing that we are freer than we feel invites our agency mm-hmm. and invites us to then, act upon the processes that are producing how we're experiencing the world. If it's from a self-cherishing standpoint or from a standpoint of white normalcy that goes unchallenged or unexamined. Yeah. So you drew, in your essay, you draw a parallel between this, this dynamic, which you're referring to as self-cherishing sort of the, the, the habitual ways that our sense of self clings to ideas, beliefs, thoughts, sensations, etc. And the sort of the the the, the 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 rooted perceptions in our culture of whiteness that that that, that, that kind of are defensive and and self-fulfilling in a certain way. Um, the, the one I guess the on a practical level in terms of like supporting the development of a more just society, mm-hmm. um, the contemplative journey, do you think, do you feel that, do you see that as a healing element because of the way it, it decenters the sense of self 
to then be more available to a decentered perception of things outside of our normal self? Or do you see what I'm getting at is like, I mean, to talk, to tackle the issue of, you know, racist filters in one's perception in, in practice might not ever come up given how some of the instructions are phrased or framed. Um, so for example, you know, if you're doing a practice where you're, you're told to, you know, to see things correctly, you need to focus on your breath. When your mind wanders, you need to let go of those thoughts and then return your attention to the breath. You could do that and, and you could become highly adept and skilled at doing that and never explore a single view about anything beyond your experience of the breath. Right. Yeah. So now I don't, I don't teach practice like that. I, I encourage anything from your regular life to come in and fully inhabit your meditation to let your life mm -hmm. fully into your meditation. But um, I guess I, I'd like to hear if I know you're a practitioner too. And like, how do you see the, the transformations that one undergoes in a meditative journey directly supporting the dismantling or the undoing of, 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 of more pernicious perceptions uh, of self and other that, that reify and, and reinforce racist issues in, in culture mm -hmm. at large. And that's a, probably a huge question and, and we can go through it slowly. <laughs> but also, I mean, hugely important. I mean, I think, so the, the latter point of your framing, um, I think, is important that it is man manifestly the case that many people become very good meditators without ever having to, many white people become very good meditators without ever um, uh, mapping their contemplative skills onto issues of race and examining the racial structures of their experience, racialized structures of their experience. Mm -hmm. Um, so that is to say that, like, I don't think it's true that just becoming a good meditator means that we necessarily automatically will overcome the sort of polarization of racialized perception. I do think, though, that the former way that you framed this is a really useful way of thinking about this, that um, as meditators, we sit down every day in order to decenter the sort of habitual patterns of our thought, of self-cherishing, of um, aggression and passion. And um, that can get very uncomfortable, in my experience at least. There's certain points at which that feels extremely destabilizing. And um, the ability to can, can sort of flag, hold your seat in that. Oh, sure. Pause you right there. Yeah, yeah. I want to... The, I want to open that up if we can, because that mm. I think that that development of the decentering of the self in meditation and and how that can be experienced as destabilizing. Now, this is because this is something that I I profoundly experienced myself, mm. kind of an extreme case. Um, but it's something I talked about with my therapist, who was involved in Buddhist psychology stuff for many years. Um, and uh, it seems to be kind of at the heart of the tension between Western and Buddhist psychology um, in that, you know, Western psychology tends to focus on sort of shoring up and strengthening a, a healthy sense of self and ego. 
And right. Buddhism seeks to uh, not necessarily annihilate that, but to decenter it and to and to put it in a broader context, which is to see that the ego is just a small blip in the experience of being, um, and not not the the seat of being, if you will. Right. Uh, um, but the it can be the transitions here, and this is where the what I try to talk about in terms of expectations on a path the expectations people can have is that they're going to do their practice and their life is just going to get better and better and better and um you know if we took a macro view i could see that development occurring but at any given time it can feel like a very regressive um u-turn of an experience where you feel like you're you're even more in um you know potholes of Mm -hmm. confusion and despair and depression um not because things aren't working, but because of that destabilized experience that I think you're getting at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I can relate to that myself. <laughs> and yeah. uh, the, I do think that a part of the view of Buddhist psychology or the, the um, view of Buddhist practice is developing a capacity to ride how the discovery of how insubstantial we really are and um that feeling of uh, my experience of it was feeling like I was falling apart when I was first really starting to meditate and um and on my first kind of long retreat really feeling genuinely scared of uh not necessarily a new experience of, uh, well, not necessarily the arising of some different state of mind per se, but seeing up close sort of in large format, how my mind was genuinely working. And um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot to say about sort of the, the skill of being able to be with that. But I do think that it, if I can just interject, it's yeah. what I try to explain to folks, at least the kind of my classes, is that the initial insights of meditation confront one with the kind of a real data set of what you're actually like, right. and that's that's yeah. also that's often counter yeah. counterfactual or counter narrative to our our normal perception of who we are. Like so, normally you can have a perception that you're you got your your shit reasonably together. You can you can get drive a car. You can go get groceries. You can pay your bills. You, you're you're the CEO in charge of all this. But then you look take a closer look under the hood and it's this this cacophony of chaos right at least initially yeah and it's not that the meditation is creating that it's more that it's suddenly now being revealed without all the compensatory distractions that prevent us from actually seeing that chaotic experience and um i think that is a it's a it's the it's a painful first insight yeah, but it's, but it's an essential one, right? Yeah, one of my first meditation teachers pointed out uh, that we are on the cushion the way we are in life. Yeah, <laughs> and seeing for what in my case, seeing just how hard I was on myself on the cushion, and just how unkind I was uh, in my meditation practice, really kind of gave me insight into really just the the de- extent to which um, 
I was making my life much harder than I realized it needed to be, <laughs> mm-hmm. that it really gave me a picture of, um, yeah, that the, I think the subtle level of, uh, suffering and dissatisfaction, dissatisfactoriness that was sort of endemic in my day-to-day experience, but then I experienced kind of in high def <laughs> through practice, um, So yeah, bringing that into stark relief, I think, um, and being able to, to kind of, well, I think so. So yeah, being able to be with that, I think is a really important kind of, uh, moral psychological skill uh, without kind of saying like, well, this made me feel crazier. So I'm definitely going to stop doing it. (laughs) Well, you know, and that's the, the, that's the step I want to that's the, mm. that step between yes. seeing that and the moral psychological skill. That's the step I want to make sure we we we, we flesh out because, um, and I'll start you. I'll, I'll try to start you the way I, I would think of it. It's like when you identify with yourself as the thinker of your thoughts. When when your sense of self is kind of uh, anchored in within that process then it follows that whatever the thought is if you're the if you're the the owner of that thought then you essentially are held by the implication of that thought and often driven to act based on the feeling and statement of that thought mm-hmm. um, but when you can wake up out of that and this is again sort of shifting into the more unity consciousness that ram das was speaking to when you wake up out of that you feel you see, you experience yourself as a as a being of consciousness that's aware of thinking. The thinking doesn't stop, but the identity of being the thinker and the and 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 experiencing the the reflexive urges and impulses and 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 need to compulsively act on that thought that all changes. It's gone. It's just like the thought it just becomes a bit of the weather. It's like a breeze mm-hmm. going against your thing. You know, it's like you don't have to do anything with it. It's just that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and I think that frees up moral potential and that may not be the right word or phrase for it but it's like you are now you are now open you're operating from a a sphere in which the the outcome is not predetermined by the conditioning and and identification yeah i mean that to me is precisely getting to because point that we're freer than we feel Uh that most of the time we feel totally identified completely enmeshed with, with each and every kind of blip of our thought process and being able to get a little space from that and be able to almost see the thought process arise, <laughs> approach, depart on the horizon without necessarily being taken for a ride. That I think is for me as a meditator, what the kind of agency, the kind of freedom that we're cultivating. So, this may be a, a, a crude parallel or cr- a crude way of trying to connect all this, but mm. so I think of meditation sometimes as a way of developing capacities, which then become kind of features of being that can, those capacities are, are transferable to other things. So for example, yeah. like, you know, on a simple level, I can, sit with my own discomfort and irritability around an interpersonal dynamic on the cushion. I can really work with that. I can see it and practice Mm -hmm. with it, explore it, 
And then I can see how after the sitting, if that's, if I were to re-engage or re-enact re that, that interpersonal issue outside with, with the real situation, I might have a different way of seeing it. And can you hear me? No, you can't hear me. We just lose. Oh, there you are. I, I lost, I lost you again. I think that was my headphone. I'm, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Well, we can, we can edit this out. Um, yeah, the earbuds sometimes can be. Uh, you're coming in and out still. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so, and you, you keep talking. Let me see what happens. Okay. Well, I can also take out my earbud, but then I don't know how that'll impact. The Try sound. that. Try that. Just okay. go. Just go through the mic on your on your laptop and see. Let's see. Okay. How it... Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah, you're you slight different tone, but it's it's still pretty clear. Um, of course, now I've completely lost my train of thought. Do you remember where I was? If by any chance, something about um, oh, the interpersonal. Like, so I'll do, I'll try to do a, a clean start on this. So what I was trying to get at, Jessica, is that you know we can look at you know interpersonal issues while you're in the meditation on a cushion and, and, and sort of gain a perspective on it and a, and, a, and a new way of experiencing it and one that's not de sort of defined or, or predicated by conditioned reactions. And then you might see that that ability that you develop on the cushion transposes into a real life event where you might say, oh, there's the same triggering ex experience, but in, as a consequence of my getting to know it more in my meditation process, I can now see it for for, for greater clarity and then respond from a place of freedom and the Foucaultian sense of free, freedom um, and not have it be determined by, by past, past conditioning as much. And so that's a, obviously a very simplistic parallel of practice life to real world life. Um, but do you, is that sort of what you're getting at when you, when you see the relationship between the decentering of a self and the development of moral phenomenology and um, a sort of a commitment to to dismantling racism. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I see these as parallel moral psychological processes and skillfulness in one has a parallel to skillfulness in another. So it's not to say that you can't decenter whiteness without having contemplative skills or without having you know, meditative experience of decentering the self in uh, one's practice. But I think that actually uh, developing the skill through a contemplative practice does support and help you anticipate what exactly it will feel like when you're decentering whiteness in your experience. And I think what's really valuable about that is like, as a meditator, you can come to expect like, okay, I know this feeling, this is destabilizing. This is feeling destabilized. Uh, this is, or even I can recognize that examining this structure of my experience is making me feel crazier because <laughs> I'm seeing it closer up than I was before. But that doesn't mean that there's something fundamentally wrong. And that doesn't mean that this means that what I'm doing is unhealthy or that what I'm doing should stop, which I think is sometimes a danger when we start investigating our privilege as white folks, or when we start 
trying to see the ways that uh, we're centering whiteness as a norm, um, as sort of the zero point in our kind of expectations or perceptions of society that um, I think, and I mean, this is, I think, a little bit of what people are talking about with the concept of white fragility. Not that I think that that is a completely unproblematic conversation. We can turn to that if you want. But um, I think a lot of times that experience of feeling decentered and how freaky that can be, a lot of folks shut down because they're like, well, something is obviously wrong. <laughs> yeah. This is not what this is, should be. I should start, I should be feeling morally better, not morally worse or psychologically worse. And so I think that that kind of resilience is really valuable, actually, when it comes to doing the sort of intrapersonal personal, uh, anti-racist uh, practice. So th- this might be too much of a simplification then, but uh, and, I, and I'm applying a, a, a sense of it that is not, has, doesn't have anything to do with racism. It just has to do with... Um, my to- my own tolerance for discomfort. Mm. So, for example, you know, I think that's it, discomfort is and, and shame and the shame of dis- discomfort of shame is at the heart of some of this. And um, one of the things that I've appreciated over the years, I, one of the ways I think that meditation supports the growth and expansion of one's being is because. Pr- principally because in sitting with yourself through all the ups and downs of moment to moment experience and and seeing what blows into your mind body process over and over again, you develop a tolerance towards the, the aspects of your being that are very, very uncomfortable. Everybody confronts these things. And then the beautiful part of the contemplative journey is this, the tools chest that the contemplative traditions have on how to open to include, transform, bring kindness and compassion to those difficult parts of ourselves. And in integrating those, those, those painful experiences and painful on the level of sensation and emotion, but integrating those um, and being able to sit with them, I think set someone up to be able to tolerate discomfort in, in, situations off the cushion that they would normally run away from. So, you know, I can give you a very simple example, but, and, but I think it speaks to this. I, a few years ago, um, I had a, a very highly regarded professor emeritus of improvisation at a Boston college, Boston university come to my, come to me and, and, and um, came for acupuncture, but he, he talked me into taking a lesson with him. Hmm. And, and I started, so I was like, this is a great opportunity. I can get back into my music. I can go learn from this beautiful old soul. And, you know, I went to my, I remember my first lesson, he sat me down on the couch. I couldn't take my instrument out. And he, he asked me to listen to something and then sing it back. And, you know, I was never a good singer. And I still remember it like it was yesterday, sitting in his basement studio and literally croaking like a, like a sick frog, trying to rec- recreate this, this sound. I remember the, the sweat pouring down me, the, the thudding of the chest. And, and I knew, I was like, I can tolerate this. Yeah. You know, I, I don't have to have a complete panic d- attack mm-hmm. because of this discomfort. Um, now, that's not, that's a lot, that's a, that's, there's, a, there's a big leap from being able to 
sit in the discomfort of singing a song <laughs> in, a, in a music lesson to sitting in the discomfort of um, racial tension or, mm-hmm. or, 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 or racial uh, disharmony. Yeah. Um, but I do think there is a, a connecting piece there that that it's sort of like we're we're training up ourselves to be uncomfortable, to be right. okay with discomfort, so that we can have a more productive conversation through that discomfort later. I think that's great. I yeah, I really uh, agree. I think you're right, and I think an interesting. So I think that's true, and an interesting departure that's worth being aware of. Um, as sort of white practitioner anti-racists is that, you know, when we practice, we are sitting through discomfort and and learning to tolerate discomfort, learning to tolerate that feeling of kind of maybe falling apart a little bit and what's freaky about that. I, one would think because we have a strong motivation of relating with our own suffering in a more, you know, uh, in in a healthier, more sane way and developing capacity to be compassionately beneficial to others. And so we have this strong motivation in mind, I think, at least I do, that oh, that's why I'm practicing. I know why I'm practicing. And I think that on the anti-racist side, white folks also need to get very clear <laughs> on their motivation. Mm-hmm. And that if we're entering into that project from some sort of kind of like this view of martyrdom or saviorism or whatever that like, as soon as kind of shit hits the fan (laughs) and feels uncomfortable, it's easy to lose sight of what we're there for. Like what is the reason for sitting through this discomfort and and working through it and kind of coming to understand what's giving rise to it and being able to sort of work with it and uh, work with its malleability. And so I think it's, if we fail to perceive, frankly, I know this sounds weird, but like if we fail to see our own (laughs) self-interest in anti-racism, that when everybody is doing better, everyone is doing better. And where life is precious, life is precious. And that's the world that I want. If we can connect to a strong motivation that goes beyond just kind of intellectually saying, well, we live in America and a just society means equality or some kind of very thin conception of what's motivating us. I think that that's when people really fall apart. When uh, under duress, when things start feeling tense, that they kind of uh, will kind of bail, frankly, without a motivation for staying with that discomfort. Yeah. I don't know if I heard you correctly there. You were talking about the connection between a self-interest, I think more of an altruistic self-interest. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, um, and, um, I don't know, how, what does that connect to? Like when, when people, I, I, the phrase that comes to my mind is when like, it's like a Ramana Maharshi reflection, when you realize that all there is, is self, everything is animated by self-interest. I mean that's from the that's from the absolute perception that, that we're just connected. So so your self-interest is that's not just about the, the little self, but the sense of the, the, the big self uh, is is moving or you're you're operating from that level. Um is that what you meant though? Like as, yeah, an altruistic self-interest of not it's not good for me personally exclusively, but 
again, I mean, maybe the best expression of altruistic self-interest is where everyone is doing better. Everyone is doing better. Yeah. Um, well, and that's, again, this is, this is where I'm going to sound Pollyannish, I'm sure, but, uh, you know, listening to some of the political conversations, not just about, you know, about wealth inequality and things like that. Um, there, 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 there's all sorts of political ways of redressing inequality um, through policy and, 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 and things like that. But one idea, and I know this is the, the Pollyannish side of me, but it's if more and more leaders were to wake up out of the small self identity with things and realize their universal connection, the unity consciousness of, of being, um, it, it, it hoarding things simply doesn't make any sense anymore. It's, yeah. it's, Ill, it's, Ill, it's, a, it's, a, it's a movement of, Ill, of, 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 of illogic. And, um, and so, I mean, I, this, is, this is where I, I do think there's a kind of a, a social action element of contemplative practice. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily, it, it doesn't negate the need for structural reform for sure. And I, I don't want to be, yeah. get that confused at all, but, um, but at the same time, those structural reforms are inhabited by consciousness, by beings with consciousness. And if the consciousness at the individual level is still individually focused, I think it can perpetuate, um, perceptions of, of separation and otherness that that just mm-hmm. continues to feed a, a negative cycle or a positive cycle of negativity. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that that's actually a really important point when discussing anti-racism in this register of moral phenomenology and uh, individual practice, because I think, you know, something that's really important to keep in mind is that Right now we're in the, in this moment culturally where so many white people are really like uh, taking taking up the task of educating ourselves about racism and the roles that we can play in perpetuating racism. And I think that's great. Of course, that needs to happen. Um, but remaining at the level of kind of self-reflection or, you know, uh, white accountability groups <laughs> um, and reading groups and all of that, like that's important work, but it's not the work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is going to sound maybe a little cynical, but it it, it strikes me as it's like a it's a fashion party, mm-hmm. like in a certain level. There's, there's it's like fashionable to do it, and it's fashionable to perform it and um, to make the requisite noises. But I don't necessarily see deep transformation occurring um, at that level. And I don't know, is that what sort of you're getting at? Somewhat, and well, I actually think that very deep transformation can happen clearly. You know, I believe this at the level of one's own psychology, one's own uh, phenomenological work that one can do on oneself. But um, I do think that there can be a problem with white people particularly focusing on kind of consciousness raising and coming to understand uh, their own sort of habits of whiteness and all of this, of becoming kind of neurotically uh, obsessed (laughs) with that level of work and and also almost cultivating a sort of like uh, 
self, uh, limiting sense of like, well, you know, I'm never going to get to the bottom of my whiteness. This is lifelong work. Um, I will never feel like I'll be able, I, I can be in society in a constructive anti-racist way because I'm just way too, you know, caught up in my own racist habits, et cetera, et cetera. And we can kind of end up, uh, I think that that ends up letting white people off the hook too much or actually doing more than just reflecting on our own thinking. We also need to actually support anti-racist work and the anti-racist activists and organizers and uh, political thinkers uh, that are out there in our, in our communities. And so, um, yeah, I think that just the moral phenomenological work is essential because we can't, you know, there also is the fact that, you know, historically white people showing up in civil rights and racial justice movements has been historically a liability. (laughs) Um, uh, we do have a history of kind of blowing up effective activist groups um, by kind of just going in guns blazing and being like, I'm here to help. <laughs> mm. And um, so there is a, I think that there is a place for reflecting on ourselves and learning how to be kind of uh, skillful and self-critical. Uh, but we can't just remain at the level of trying to develop our kind of intrapersonal skills and our self-criticism and call that anti-racist work. I guess that's my main concern. Do you know that there, we do need to be engaging with structures and not just kind of self-reflection, in my opinion. Right, right, right. No, no, I, I think that's that's sort of what I was trying to get at. Um, and then, you know, there is this uh, other, I'm not even sure, this is where I might step on the third rail a little bit here, but, um, you know, we're talking about like being anti-racist or or supporting anti-racial agenda as, as implicitly good. And on one level, I definitely, I, you know, on the level of looking at the symptom of our society, I, I align with that. The, the, the discomfort I start to feel is when I feel like some of the very, and this, I'm I'm sort of relying on uh, some analysis by John McWhorter, Mm-hmm. Here, like some of the, like the I mean, he's essentially called the, the, this this movement of anti-racism a new religion. Yeah, and and in in the sense that it, it, I think one of his gripes is that it looks at all disparity as symptomatic of oppression, essentially, and that all differences in populations, all differences between individuals comes down to uh, the simplistic lens of oppressor and oppressed. And that the discomfort I have is I feel like it, that there's, there's, there's truth, there's some truth in that for sure, but it's mm-hmm. also missing out on some of the nuance and, and other variables and conditions that, so it sort of, it takes as causation what is probably more elements of correlation Mm-hmm. And, and, and then it, I think he's concerned that it's going to continue to, to, to strengthen actually the anti-racist agenda is, is reinforcing racist structures in a way. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I realize that this maybe sounds uncharacteristic 
or off brand <laughs> given, you know, what I've written about and some of what I've discussed in our conversation, but I am sympathetic to some of McWhorter's views, frankly. And I think that he identifies a really, uh, important point about the sort of the way that anti-racism has, uh, be, a, adopted the structure almost of religious fanaticism. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember he has kind of cited the sort of identification of um, heresy (laughs) and um, blasphemy that lead to excommunication. You know, if you misstep and say the wrong thing or don't hold the sort of uh, dogmatic view of what is politically acceptable when it comes to race and racism, then you are excommunicated um, from, you know, a political or social community. And I also see, you know, I don't, if, as far as I know, I don't think he mentions this, but I can also see sort of the search for saviors and a search for a Bible, you know, of holding up like uh, Robin D'Angelo's work or holding up Eva Max Kendi's work and just saying like, this is the new, uh, doctrine gospel it's new gospel this is the new gospel right yeah and almost like these are revealed texts yeah and i you know perhaps unsurprisingly as a buddhist i'm not super i don't really go in for all of that (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and i can understand though that i and i think that this sometimes might be an outgrowth of the feeling of shame that you sort of named earlier in this conversation that you know, in light of this shame, it's like, okay, well, just tell me what I need to do. Right. Uh, yeah. And we're looking for someone that will just correct our errors. Yeah. And I really think that this is a more complicated task than that. Yeah. And um, so I'm kind of, I'm sympathetic to that thesis, frankly. Um, and I think that genuine anti-racist work is, is about more than adopting a set of dogmas it really is about transforming consciousness and transforming society and getting into kind of uh, internecine liberal warfare <laughs> of like liberals cannibalizing each other over these things, I think is really not bringing us forward. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that's a real issue. And um yeah, you keep mentioning the middle way, and I, and and every time you mention it, it I feel something in my chest sort of soften. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like it, it it's not either or, and and it, and I think what you know, even as much as I like McGuire, I also feel like he's he's you know he's not acknowledging what you're getting at, which is this this very vital role of the transformation of the individual consciousness within these systems. Um, and so I, I do think there. I think because of the emotional charge on on all sides of this, because the emotional charge is so long, strong, it's you know, and this is what we experience as contemplatives. We see how an emotional energy comes in and immediately shapes how we see something. And so when the, when, the, when the emotions are so high and they're understandably high, I'm not trying to deny or silence that, but right. to understand when the emotional pitch gets to a certain point, it makes one's perception or shapes one's perception in such a way that they might not be able to hold kind of the nuance that I'm trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Um, I, know that, I know that's very sure, very much the case for me. 
Like I can, I can list out dozens and dozens of examples where I get caught into emotional state and I lose the plot. And then seek stability immediately kind of like reorient of like, okay, I, where can I hang my hat now? And I think that maybe we're seeing some of this, or that might be what McWhorter is picking up on that. Like white people, when we're sort of confronted with the sort of challenge to the centrality of white normalcy in our thinking and in, in our society, that really not only transforms kind of stands to transform our self-conception, it also stands to transform our place in the world. Mm-hmm. And that is scary, it could be scary. And so what do, you know, a good liberal doesn't say, you know, like, well, it's all hogwash then, like racism doesn't matter, doesn't exist. But they say like, okay, where can I find new stability? Where can I get another existential foothold? All right, it's going to be in Robin D'Angelo's white, white fragility as my new gospel or whatever. And so, I, yeah, I think that, again, the capacity to tolerate ambiguity and to tolerate process and instability and uh, fluidity and unfixedness all, I think, factors into this. This could be an over, oversimplification, but and I'm not the first to say this. Something I think Sam Harris tries to mention frequently is that the thing that keeps us from you know, tribalistic warfare in the streets is the ability to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. The, the good conversations are really at the heart of, and I, I say good, you, know, you can have many bad conversations, but good conversations are going to f- facilitate kind of cognitive empathy, the ability to, to see things from another's perspective. Um, and in the, in the, meeting of minds a a way forward can emerge through that the, the dialogic or the dialectical process of communication like that um and the the fear that i i see just everywhere is that it is this increasing balkanization of identity across all sorts of different categorizations um and that conversation is increasingly under threat because of kind of the the more extreme forms of, of politics connected to those identities. Right. And, and um, so I, I attribute the kind of the, the strong emotion that, that all these issues engender creating, you didn't use this word, but it's almost like a righteousness as a, as a reactive response to these strong things. Like, and that's what like, I think you use the phrase, how do we find existential an existential safe spot a, a foothold right in this and and i think the right energy of righteousness is often kind of the glue <laughs> that holds us to that existential patch um and so i keep coming back to the tolerating discomfort internally as being a precondition for really being able to have a productive conversation um yeah, and I think entering into it from with the expectation that security, absolute security might not be available here. And it's almost like the difference between having a safe space and a safe enough space that I can't expect that this won't feel, uh, that I won't be confronted with uh, some vulnerability and exposure here. Yeah. I should expect that. Yeah, that, that can, I can totally see that. Um, 
I feel like we touched on a lot of what I wanted to get into. I don't think we've tied anything up necessarily, or I didn't tie, need to tie anything up here, but um, I think we, we, we explored some conversational questions and themes that uh, are very much relevant to both this podcast in terms of a full spectrum spirituality mm. describe it, and, um, and the themes you addressed in your, in your article. I'll be linking to that article. Are there any other themes or things you wanted to get, get into um, or questions you wish I had asked or anything like that? Nothing that comes to mind. No, I feel like we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. And, yeah. I didn't, I don't have anything sort of on the top of my head, but yeah. I wish. Well, you I, w- I just want to thank you for coming on. It was, it was great to connect with you. And, um, and I, it really stimulated a lot of interesting thought for me. And I hope, I hope that plays out for the audience too. But, Really Thanks thank so much for the invitation. It was wonderful to have this conversation and to reconnect with you. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Jessica Locke. Having heard her speak directly, I highly encourage you to check out the article that I've linked to in the show notes that dives into many of the themes we talked about um, in written form. So it's a good good way to review and polish up um, her presentation on these ideas. Um, it's a very good article. And also in the show notes, you'll see a link to the course that begins in April that she's co-teaching with uh, Brian Lesage. And that is being, that's a course, it's an online course being held over several weeks. It's one night a week for maybe five to six weeks um, through the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. So if the themes and topics of this conversation resonated with you, please check out the opportunity to study with Jessica in that course online. Okay, I will sign off for now. I hope wherever you are that you're doing well. I hope you're navigating through COVID times. Um, with some degree of ease and safety and health. Once again, thank you for your attention today, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.